participate in social media, listen to podcasts like this one. If you go to museums, consume documentary films, read and maybe write blogs, you are likely involved with public history. Hello, I'm Jonathan Nieder, host of Seekers and Scholars. And in this episode, we are going to explore the dynamic and diverse world of public history and how and where history about Mary Baker Eddy and Christian science fits into that landscape. To explore this topic, I'm so pleased to welcome our guests, Rivi Feinsilber and Dr. John Kneebone. Rivi is assistant archivist at the Mary Baker Eddy Library and very much part of the engine of social media for the library. Welcome, Rivi. Thank you. Happy to be here. Also with us, Dr. John Kneebone, who is Associate Professor Emeritus of History at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, where he has taught public history and has contributed to its production in Richmond and elsewhere. Also, he was a professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth when Rivi was a student there in the master's program in history. So welcome, John, to this reunion with a former student. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, this isn't quite the first time that we've had a professor and a former student come together for a Seekers and Scholars podcast. Uh, we've done that a couple of times before, but Rivi, it, it's always a special occasion, I feel, when we can be the venue for a reunion of professor and student. Yes, and I'm very grateful for this opportunity. Though Dr. Kneebone and I have kept in touch, uh -huh. uh, this is the first time since his public history course that I was a student of that we are able to discuss the subject. That's fantastic. So <laughs> thank you so much, both of you, for coming together uh, for this recording. John, public history is this term that I hear circulating. People talk about it. But what is meant by public history? How would you define it? Well, that's, that's actually a fun question. My introduction to public history course, uh, as Rivi may remember, our first session topic was, what is public history? For most people, public is the opposite of private. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's such a thing as private history. Everybody does history, and we generally do it uh, in engagement with other people. Mm -hmm. um, one definition for public history has been history practiced outside the classroom. But increasingly, historians who teach history in the classroom are bringing public history elements into the classroom, that they're not necessarily isolated in ivory tower. Mm -hmm. I prefer to think of public history as history broadly defined for, with, and by the public. That is an engagement with the public. Uh, of course, we need to keep in mind that there are varieties of publics out there as well. Mm -hmm. But it is uh, something different than the old ivory tower notion of history. It's been practiced for a long time before we actually had the term by archivists, librarians, museum professionals, and others uh, in engagement with the public. Mm. So, Rivi... You've had this opportunity to study with Dr. Kneebone about public history. Now you're here at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. You've been with us. How long? I have been at the Mary Baker Eddy Library for three and a half years. Well, you've certainly made a big impression and, and <laughs> have contributed a great deal to um, what we've produced here and what we're engaged with. But when you think about your work here and public history, how would you describe it? 
what you do and how the library is contributing to public history. I will say, based on Dr. Neatbone's definition, the Mary Baker Eddy Library engages with the public, mm-hmm. and we open our history to the public. Mm-hmm. I'm on the social media team, so we pick out different artifacts, photographs, documents that we have in our archives, and we show it to the people on social media, on Facebook and Instagram. Also, we have exhibits on our first floor and fourth floor, mm-hmm. and the archives is open for research. Right. So we have a variety of ways that we serve our audience, Christian scientists and not Christian scientists. I would tag along to Revy and say that the internet has revolutionized public history practice. The institutions are expected to be outward facing with uh, social media, making access to collections and providing insights to materials that are held there and inviting people to not only visit, uh, but to work with materials online as well. And that's something I think that's become the norm rather than unusual. So, John, you've been talking about the significance of the Internet in how history is communicated today. What have been other influences that have helped bring us to this really kind of vital, interesting time for public history? A lot of influences came together to make this a special time for public history. One thing that often gets forgotten is the bicentennial of the American Revolution. In 1976, which had all sorts of public history activities that demonstrated to even skeptics that the public was really interested in learning more about our history and that there were good things that could come out of that. More broadly, I think that the, the last 40 years have seen real interest uh, from scholars in memory and how people understand the past looking at collective memory by sociologists, by political scientists, psychologists, not just historians. Mm -hmm. Part of this came out of the collapse of the Soviet Union and collapse of the Marxist notion of progressive history leading us sort of inexorably onward into the future. That's weakened, and we are all taking a backward look uh, at the past. And in another direction, an important one, out of Europeans, particularly Germans, confronting the Holocaust. Mm. Uh, It was an historical trauma that could not be papered over. And the problem was how to heal, how to remember. The U.S. has historical traumas too, slavery, women's rights, Native Americans. And that has been a, a real impetus for public historians to work with the public I think our problem is one that we have to tell the whole truth about our subjects as best we can, but we also have to be sensitive to the needs of our audiences in the present, especially when we are encountering a traumatic past. Uh, So it's become much more complicated and much more interesting. I mean, it's very exciting to hear what you have to say because you're talking about the bicentennial and the celebration of the American Revolution, but I think you're also talking about a revolution in history, about how history is 
told about how it's communicated. Really, in terms of that revolution, I mean, you've studied history, you have background as a historian, but in order to participate in that revolution, what other kinds of skills have you needed to develop to be as meaningfully involved in the exchange of public history as possible? Besides just knowing how to be an archivist, Mm -hmm. really, I think the most important, which Dr. Kneebone touched on, was engaging with the public. That skill Mm -hmm. of how do you take history, uh, which can be controversial or have trauma, and how do you package it that you are addressing any issues that have happened, but you're not sugarcoating it or changing it, you're presenting it as it happened, but with the thought of how will the audience take this? I'm telling the truth, but what is it that is important about this truth? So I think that's definitely a skill I learned from Dr. Nebone in his (laughs) intro to public history class that has informed my work at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Yeah. John, you were talking about public history being of service in helping to address traumas and to help perhaps bring about healing of them. I'm curious, Rivian John, how can history itself be an agent of healing in the contemporary space? Healing is a process Mm -hmm. rather than uh, something that necessarily would occur with with a single exhibit. People need to, to think and meditate and to bring those things into their lives as well. So we should be modest. And we should be very attentive that uh, we don't end up shocking and hurting people inadvertently. For me, at least, my practice in teaching is to always be able to talk about agency Mm -hmm. and the ways that even in the worst of times, people were protesting, people stood up, and people managed to find ways to love one another, and survive. Mm, That's beautiful. In your previous question about healing of trauma, I agree that, you know, the recognition of events is only one small part. We have the history and we have the evidence that shows that. And and I think that's just one part. But then, uh, for example, in Richmond, Virginia, there's a street monument avenue that had these monuments dedicated to Confederate leaders. And even though Richmond, as the capital of the Confederacy, they had that history, I think really it got to the point where knowing that history wasn't enough and the people really took their healing in their hands by protesting Mm -hmm. to bring those monuments down. And the work still isn't over, but in our history, this is not the first time monuments have been protested to be taken down or defaced. So... You know, looking back is not just about, as Dr. Kneebone said, the trauma, but also looking for people to see this is how they stood up and this is how we can stand up now. Mm -hmm. As for the Mary Baker Eddy Library, you know, our mission is to collect, preserve, and make accessible not just the history of Mary Baker Eddy, but also the Christian science movement. But I think it's also important to know that that history plays into a larger narrative. Mrs. Eddy interpreted the Bible. Mm -hmm. That wasn't something that women socially 
were accepted to do in the 19th century into Mm -hmm. the 20th century. So she really was in a sea of men, maybe not in the Christian science movement, but in the larger religious movement in America for a woman to say, this is how I interpret it, and now I am leading the way into a movement. I think that really illustrates the power women had that maybe some people don't realize or is not taught to them. Mm-hmm. Um, Rivius, you've been involved with disseminating public history through the various channels of the, the Mary Baker Eddy Library. What kind of response has there been? For our social media pages, you know, those likes really are something, <laughs> but Good. also those comments really show us, you know, are we going the right track? Do people like this? Do people not like this? We've posted a couple photos, one of Mrs. Eddie on a chaise lounge reading, and we asked our audience, what are you reading? And people really loved that, and they were engaging. Mm-hmm. And I think that shows a woman in the late 19th century, early 20th century, took a minute to read a book. Mm-hmm. And we do that, or, or we relax. So I think it's also to humanize figures. So we get that type of reception. And also our podcast and <laughs> right. and our articles that we put online. Many people said, oh, yes, I heard that podcast and this is what I like. Or sometimes, oh, you know, I was thinking, why didn't you cover this? So that's how we get reception, but we engage with that audience and we take what they would like to see or hear and we incorporate that as best we can. Mm, that's great. I want to circle back to... Um when you were talking about Richmond and the sort of tensions around uh, history of the Civil War, um, it makes me think of what, for me, was a very notable issue of the Christian Science Monitor weekly magazine. The cover story was Roots of Violence, and it looked at the violent history of a region of the United States and how that continues to radiate into um, what we experience now and what we're reckoning with now. But what was most significant to me about that was then seeing a reader's contribution, a reader's response to it. So she is writing in about her experience of growing up. I think it was first in Delaware. And then she moved to Kentucky. And what that all meant for her in terms of different branches of her family and how they um, perceived things and how, how much that challenged her as, as a young person to deal with this. And so her gratitude for the monitor sort of taking on this subject. But I'm just curious in terms of that article itself, but then this reader's response, how does that fit in you know, to public history? Well, I would say that any time you get a response that expresses appreciation and gratitude and that the person was able to use the work, you treasure that and hold on to it. Feedback more often is pretty ambivalent. Mm -hmm. Um, The interaction and dialogue that one might hope on these difficult topics is uh, it's not easy to pull off mm-hmm. at all. Um, and when it does affect somebody positively, that's really something to hold on to as a positive achievement. 
You know, what was interesting for me was the confessional aspect of this reader's response to the monitor feature story and that uh, issue on roots of violence. She writes in her response, and it's it's longer one than you typically see in terms of readers write, um, which is a, a featured part of every edition of the magazine. She writes, quote, the biggest shock was that my own relatives were stuck in prejudicial lies, which came from past slavery, government decisions and laws, and even religious instruction. My grandparents ran several small businesses. Kind and capable black people worked for them, but no black people shopped at our stores, nor were any black children in my school. Southern society was made up of whole communities whose lives were certainly separate, but never equal. She goes on, quote, my sister-in-law marched with Martin Luther King Jr. in Louisville, Kentucky. She was put in jail, and she concludes, I'm grateful for learning patience and know the monitor will keep me reading about historic mistakes and still respecting leaders. We must have the whole truth and reason morally and justly. Um, you know, to me, <laughs> that's kind of an anthem for the best ideals of public history. And also, you know, what you were saying, John, about healing being a process, you hear that in the reader's response and how public history can contribute to that evolution of thought and awareness that takes us to a better place. So that is the monitor in dialogue with the public. And of course, the library actually is the custodian of the monitor's archives, as well as that of the history of the Christian Science Church. But I'm curious, um, as public historians, how do you make choices as to what you feel you need or want to present to the public? Let me jump in. And uh, I think you always have to appreciate, as, as Review suggested, the mission of the institution mm -hmm. and the strengths and weaknesses of the collections. Um, you may not have all the materials needed to do a proper exhibit. You may be able to borrow those as well. Um, so, so you need to be conscious of your mission as an institution, your strengths and weaknesses as an institution. But I, I think public history that's best responds to public interest mm -hmm. and keeping up with what sort of things are being talked about and debated and how your institution can provide a commentary mm. or illuminate some of those issues to fill in gaps, to be a corrective. One example is um, an institution, a research institution, that provided fellowships to scholars to come and use the collections, which were vast. They had a practice that if you came as a fellow, you had to attend a staff meeting once a week and do a presentation on your research. And the idea was that there be double benefits because when you presented on your research, the staff would be able to say, oh, have you looked at this? Or have you gone to this collection to help to expand? But the staff would learn what is interesting scholars now and how can our collections help us out. Um, number of large institutions in the 1980s ended up getting grant money to go back and recreate their finding aids, 
realizing that their finding aids created in the 1940s and 50s by traditional white male archivists had woefully neglected information, particularly about women, uh, but about family, about uh, race relations, about uh, economics even. And they went back asking new questions of their collections. And in that sense, the institution is responding to what's on the public's minds and helping to fill in gaps and be a corrective for the public. That's amazing. Um, does that resonate with you at all, Ravi, in terms of things that are being done here at the Mary Bickerty Library? Absolutely. Invited fellows have presented their findings to the staff. Mm -hmm. Oh, and we are reprocessing a very vast collection, and we have uh, found things that we didn't know were in there. Uh, for one, I remember uh, the mayor of Tokyo sent a thank you letter for aid during the, I believe, 1930s earthquake. Mm. Definitely, I think, going back and asking new questions as, as public interest in time has gone on, new gaps have come up. And I think it is important in public history to go back and say, okay, these are our new questions. What's in here? Mm -hmm. You know, when you process a collection, it's not just going through the papers and putting it in a certain order, but it's also creating a finding aid, which is a written description of not just the content, but also the context of the collection, how it's structured, where it is, restrictions, copyright access. So it really gives a researcher understanding of not just what's in there, but how to use it and what it looks like. So when they do come and they request it, they don't have to request the whole collection necessarily or they know exactly what they're looking for. So it just gives a written out structure for researchers to pinpoint what they need. Yeah, I really enjoy finding aids. They, they really are communications to <laughs> the public, and it really helps me, even if I'm not going to be researching necessarily in that collection, it gives me an understanding of what's there and some sort of key ingredients or some key facts about uh, the people that are treated in the, the, the collection, you know, and, and how they fit into the larger collection. It's, it's very much part of that dialogue with the public, I think. Absolutely. And especially now, um, even though this has been happening for quite a few years, but in 2023, there's been another revival of going back through the finding aids and creating more inclusive language, mm. going through the collections. And, you know, as Dr. Kneebone said, there were women, marginalized people, Native Americans, African-Americans, black people who were lost within the collection and they had always been there. Right. So those finding aids also can give those, quote unquote, voiceless people a voice. Mm, that's wonderful. It's such a fascinating world of public history. I'm just curious, you know, John and Rivi, when you think about, and you're sort of at different stages in your respective careers, but when you think about um, your engagement with public history, what have you found to be very satisfying, formative for you? How has it sort of contributed, you know, to how you feel about yourself in connection with others? Gosh, um, for me, the 
attractions of history, and history tends to attract introverts more than extroverts, I think, <laughs> um, started with the uh, idea of um, being alone in the archives, being <laughs> alone with the research, the writing, and so on. And, and across the years, the most wonderful aspect of my career has been the opportunities for collaboration with others mm -hmm. and public history, uh, much more so than academic history, involves collaboration, mm. um, uh, archival work, exhibition work, and so on. Uh, you're involved with lots of other people. And the chance to engage with others and to have the final product be something that is uh, reflective of the strengths of all the people involved is very, very satisfying to me looking back over my career. Mm, that's wonderful. And Rivi? I think for me at, at this point in my career, I feel like when I hear someone, whether that is an audience member or a colleague or even family and friends, when they read something and go, I didn't know that, like mm -hmm. um, the article on, on Betty Graham I wrote, I didn't know the creator of corrective fluid was a woman. I didn't even know she was a Christian scientist. I didn't know that she started the whole industry. And just that, well, I didn't know that. And, and you can see that engagement of it's changing the narrative and they know more. And they're like, oh, wow. And they just see the history in a different light or they've added more knowledge to what they previously thought. I think for me, you know, you could see knowledge being absorbed in, in time. Yeah. Well, that's what I love so much about it, because it's not just accumulation, it's transformation mm -hmm. that, that comes through engagement with, with history. So um, it, it really can, can shape, you know, minds and hearts. So um, thank you so much for being part of this episode, and thank you so much uh, for the work you do. It's really such a great contribution. Thanks so much, John Niebaum. You're welcome. <laughs> Uh, and thanks so much, Rivi Feinsilver. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the transformational impact of public history on society at large and how we engage with it at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Upcoming episodes include exploring the history of Christian science and its intersections with Latter-day Saint culture in Utah, learning about the experience of Jewish refugees from Nazi-controlled Europe who became important contributors to the life and reporting of the Christian Science Monitor newspaper, and about a special event we hold every year at the library where we exhibit unique items from our collection. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright. 2023.